everybody. Welcome back to Stories from a Mountain Town. This is your host, Tyler. I'm coming to you again today from the offices here at Snake River Brewing. Today with me, I have Luke Bauer, uh, Sales and Marketing Director here at the Snake River Brewery. Luke, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and today we have a little bit uh, some Monarch Pilsners. And we were actually provided a couple of nice little glasses. What kind of, what kind of glasses would you call these? Uh, we've been calling these estate glasses. Estate. They're kind of they're kind of like that uh, uh, kind of that Stella Artois kind of style, mm-hmm. where it has a little stem, but it's wide. It's not like a wine glass, but I mean, there's there's similar reasons for it. You know, wine glasses have a stem uh, partially for temperature control. Same yeah. with these, so your hands not just grabbing the glass and warming up your beer, or changing yeah. the temperature of your wine. Exactly. Um, Beer glasses tend to be um, a little less broad. We don't need quite as much oxygen, you know, to uh, mm-hmm. really bring out some of the tastes, yeah, uh, like you do in wine. Right. Uh, but I'm I'm not really the one to talk about wine. <laughs> my uh, my fiance is the sommelier. I uh, I try, but yeah, I'm a Franzia guy for wine. There you go. All right. Cheers, man. <laughs> Thank Welcome you. Show. Appreciate it. All right. So, sales and marketing director of a brewery. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about like what's your day to day. What kind of things do you do? What are you trying to achieve for the brewery? That kind of stuff. Well, I mean, we're an interesting brewery. I mean, we're so not solely <laughs> the brewery that does this. We're not magical in this way, but you yeah. know, um, we have a humongous percentage of our profits that come from our restaurant. Mm-hmm. And um, even though we sell more beer exterior to our restaurant because we ship you know, around the region and we've got five-ish states that we sell to pretty regularly, mm-hmm. um, it's just, you know, we make better profit margins in the restaurant. And so it's a, it's a split kind of job. You know, mm-hmm. the, the outside sales component is a lot of managing logistics and managing relationships in other states or other parts of the state to make sure that you know, we're getting our kegs and our cans out there. Um, whereas the marketing component has a lot more to do with bringing people into this space, you know, mm-hmm. and whether those are all the locals that, that, you know, regularly frequent here, we want to keep them coming back. Um, but also, you know, any tourists that's coming through, you yeah. know, if they only come here once, that's great for us. Like we still want those people to come in and have a good experience. And, you know, so it's a, it's kind of a split position. Um, but I think that ultimately they, you know, they intersect the way that you present yourself in, you know, uh, Sun Valley, Idaho and how your can looks or how your tap handle looks and, you know, the kind of relationships you build there. Um, you want to have that be consistent when people come in here too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just an experience. Yeah. It's interesting that you make more, make more money on the, the food side because isn't the classic saying for restaurants like, um, like break even on food and make your money on alcohol? Oh, no, no. I, I just meant in the restaurant space. We oh, serve restaurant space. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Beer coming off the tank and, you know, traveling 18 feet in a little, you know, in a hose and straight to the tap is pretty inexpensive compared to, yeah. you know, putting in a can, putting in a truck, driving it know, somewhere, driving wherever. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. When when, I, when we got done recording the episode uh, last week, Elliot brought me down to the brewing area. Mm-hmm. And showed me the whole setup, all the tubes going everywhere. And I didn't know that the taps that you have in the tap room come, like, fresh from where it's being made. Oh, yeah. I, I, I didn't really connect it. I thought maybe, like, you know, kegged it and 
put it out there. But that's you know, awesome. Sometimes we do for for specialty products that we've only done a small run on, you know. But yeah, uh, for something like our pale ale or our Paco's IPA or whatever, I mean, those are out all the time. So yeah. they just they never go into a keg. They never go into a can unless they're going to leave the building. Really, um, yeah, it's fresh off the tank. Yeah. Yeah, that was such a cool little tour. Like, I've never done a brewery tour, and that one was just, like, you know, more relaxed because we were just chilling, walking around, and then it was... But the, the part I love was just, like, how you have beer just stacked to the ceiling of this, like, 80-foot <laughs> tall room. It was just, like, walking into, like, a church of beer. Well, I mean, it's, it's cool here, too, because, you know, I'm certain that Elliot stressed this several times, but we're the oldest brewery in Wyoming. You know, we're, we turned 25 mm. last year. Um... I knew, I knew Jackson, oldest brewery in Jackson. I didn't know Wyoming. Depends on how you want to measure. Mm-hmm. The very first brewery in Wyoming uh, existed in the Wyoming Territory before Wyoming was a state. So yeah. like 1870-something. Uh-huh. Um, down in, uh, I want to say, Green River, so south of here. Yeah. Um, that building is still there, and I believe it's a bar, but it, it hasn't been a brewery since probably Prohibition. So that was technically the first brewery. Yeah. Um, Grand Teton Brewing, which is over the hill in Idaho, um, actually started here in Jackson. Uh 30 years ago, so oh, before yeah. us, but they moved to Idaho um, a couple years after they started, Yeah, and then we started, so yeah. we're the oldest operating brewery in the state, yeah. let's put it that way. Whatever way you want to cut it, 25 sure. years operating, yeah, making beer, that's way before like kind of the craft beer scene that's now super popular has taken off. I think at the time there were less than a thousand breweries in the, in the, country? In the entire country, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's part of why the experience of touring our brewery is really fun, mm-hmm. um, We've grown into this space kind of organically. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this building was originally some sort of Coca-Cola like distribution space or something to that effect. Um, yeah, I think I've heard that. But then, you know, we took over part of it for the brewery, uh, and then there was still an operating print shop, and then there was a bicycle shop, and we were all in the building. And then as we continued to grow, you know, we sort of moved through it. So yeah, um, if you go into a, a brand new brewery, um, hopefully those people have thought that through, and it's really well organized, and you know, it's super efficient to run, mm-hmm. which is not true of us, but, you yeah. know, um, I actually appreciate it. I think it's a little more organic to, like, walk through a space that's grown over time. Yeah. Um, which we have, and, you know, other breweries maybe haven't. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, uh, it was like, it was Fitz- Fitzgerald's that was in this, this mm-hmm. spot, right? Mm-hmm. That, that was a cool, um, one of your, one of your beers is um, called the Fitzgerald something, I think, and in the description it just says, we named this Fitzgerald so we can get free bike parts. <laughs> and then I asked, I asked them, and I was in there one day, and they were just like, yeah, we used to have be in the same office space and whatever. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Our, um, uh, he retired recently, but our, I guess he left as chief operations officer. I mean, it, it's we have nebulous titles, whatever, but mm-hmm. um, was head brewer for a re- very long time. Was here the, the entire 25 years until he retired. But yeah, um, he was, a, and still is, a, a huge cyclist and really a big fan and that drove a lot of that relationship and we've got quite a few people on staff that are definitely way into it yeah everyone here this is a major biking town mm-hmm. like I, I mountain bike i got a mountain bike when i moved here my girlfriend got like a road bike because she wanted to do that but like even just like commuting like it's so popular to, to commute on bike it's i mean if you like live anywhere you know from albertson's to cash creek you can bike to your place of work basically on a trail yeah i mean and yeah not have to be in the street too much i like it yeah and even even when you do have to be on the road, like pretty, everyone's pretty conscious of them. They're pretty good. Um, how many employees does the brewery have? It's seasonal. Um, yeah. I think right now we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 70-ish. Well, um, 
you know, we have a, a fairly large brewing staff uh, compared to the amount of beer that we crank out just mm -hmm. because a lot of our, um, you know, we have a fully comprehensive staff and we have a quality assurance lab, which is not necessarily true of breweries of our size. Um, so that's some staffing. And then, mm -hmm. um, again, the, the production of beer for the restaurant space versus the, you know, the packaging and all the logistics parts of shipping to other states. Like we have a little bit more staff in that space than I think maybe similar sized breweries that only serve on site. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, whatever administration people and everything else. So um, in the summer, we can go as high as 100, um, which comprises eh, more or less like 10% of the brewery staff in the whole state. So, yeah. And is that a lot of um, like the food service people that kind of come in for the, for the summer or is that like brewing operations that just... No, we have, we have a really enduring kitchen staff, um, oh. which is awesome. Yeah. Um, really keeps our food consistent and a lot of those guys have been with us for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, our wait staff... Um, we have some really great long-term wait staff as well um, that have been here in some cases for eight or 10 or one case, 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, but that is the space where it's a lot more transitory now, and particularly in the summer, you just need an extra 15 folks to, uh, to be bussers or you know, hosts or whatever. Yeah. And that, that changes a lot. Yeah. I noticed there's a lot of um, like Eastern European mm -hmm. uh, folks that come that work here. Mm -hmm. um, and I always wonder this because there's a lot of them here in town in general is there like a program that you're that the businesses are like hooked up with to like recruit from these places in eastern europe to bring them here specifically i don't know a lot about this yeah. so my my first answer is <laughs> google it uh, uh before you take what i say as like complete straightforward this is true yeah but from what i understand it there is a particular type of work visa hmm. that can be attached to a business if the business chooses to sponsor it mm -hmm. um so, I don't know, some large hotel that needs, you know, 800 employees or whatever, it's pretty easy for that, that entity to be like, all right, we're going to get together with the State Department and sponsor this visa or whatever, right? Okay. Um, why it happens to be a lot of Eastern Europeans at this time, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. Like, I know a bunch of Romanians specifically sure. here. Yeah. No idea. Um, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Because, you know, I moved here... 14 years ago, I guess, the first time that I lived here. Yeah. And so um, it was a way different town then and uh, much more homogenous. And so now, um, regardless of the, the reason why anyone's here, um, it's much more interesting that we have seven different languages being spoken in the building yeah. rather than English and Spanish, right? Yeah, like, it's cool. Um, I don't know. You know I, I personally can't tell, like, say, Moldovan from Russian or something. But it's, <laughs> like, I know that there's a difference and that, that's cool. Yeah. Because um, it used to be it was just, you know, a bunch of kids on their, like, summer break from college or whatever, from mm -hmm. wherever, Georgia or something. But, um, yeah, I think it's more interesting now. Yeah. I like talking to the, the folks from Argentina and Chile mm -hmm. that are here. And I was like, so you, you love winter so much, you went through your winter and then wanted to come <laughs> to our winter. And they're like, yes. And I was like, that's awesome. Because <laughs> I've always thought about like doing a little trip, a ski trip to Chile in like July. Sure. But you know, I don't speak Spanish that well. Not to mention that Argentinian Spanish is wildly different than say like Mexican Spanish or whatever. Or everyone, high school Spanish one and two. <laughs> which is allegedly Castilian Spanish, but that's nonsense too. And, yeah. You know, yeah, my high school Spanish, I try to go to Mexico as often as possible. Uh -huh. And I still can't speak Spanish. Like, I try, and, you know, you, you dust off whatever every time you go and hail a cab and whatever, and then you start trying to talk to the cabbie, and you're like, no, I, I still can't do this. I sound like a two-year-old, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, my, uh, I think my ability to speak Spanish, maybe it's just my own view of it, maybe I sound like an idiot anyways, <laughs> um, gets better the more I drink down there. Oh, sure. And I'm, I think that's probably good, good for everyone. Um, but yeah, you get down there and you're like, oh, I do remember some of these sentences. And obviously, you know, uh, Baño and Cerveza and sure. Dinero and here I'm going to tip you, so please serve me good alcohol. Mm-hmm. All that, all those good things. I recommend going to uh, Oaxaca. The Oaxaca. It's like the second southernmost state in Mexico and uh, is the, the center of mezcal production. Mm-hmm. And so I think we all, we all imagine that mezcal is just like smoky tequila. Right, mm-hmm. uh, totally not true. Yeah, um, and I did not know that until we went to Oaxaca City. But uh, pretty much any place you go will have a variety of you know, locally produced mezcals from you know specific farms with specific different types of agave and everything else, and you can get flights anywhere yeah. uh, for you know a hundred pesos or whatever, which is nothing. And you can just drink a hundred different kinds of mezcal because they're all served in these like half ounce kind of like little mm-hmm. taster shots. Yeah, and that's just normal. Um, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I've only ever been to like Cancun and Playa del Carmen area, just like, you know, doing the all-inclusive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that would be interesting is just kind of get out, maybe like an Airbnb somewhere in a safe area, but like sure. do a little bit of exploring. Well, I mean, to a large degree, as far as I understand it, like, you know, the border regions are hard because yeah. there's a lot of drugs and whatever. And um, when I lived in Arizona, it was really pretty routine for us to just drive down across the border because at that time it just wasn't a cartel thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we drive down all the time and you just kind of go wherever and, and you can do whatever and it was incredibly cheap and it was safe and it was awesome. Uh, I would be reluctant to drive these days mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, once you fly down, I don't know, like, personally I've never been to Cancun. I've never been to one of the resort spaces so yeah. I can't really say how that differs but... Um, yeah, I think... Um, um, we usually just pick kind of a rando spot and... Uh-huh. Out. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there was a guy on Joe Rogan's podcast that's like a, uh, he's now an American citizen, but he works in like kind of border patrol border stuff. So he knows a lot about the the nature of like what areas are dangerous and where the cartel is working at the moment. Sure. And he was explaining that yes, there's cartel activity in the, <coughs> in the Yucatan Peninsula area, in Cancun, Playa del Carmen, mm-hmm. but that's where they all are laundering their money through real businesses. Okay. So most of the time, like you might be, you know, doing business at a, at a cartel owned, like, you know, gift shop or some, or something, but it's actually, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I was in Brooklyn the other day yeah. and, uh, apparently there's a, a huge back and forth between Brooklyn and like areas around Tulum. Mm. And so we were talking to one of the business owners there at a cidery and he said essentially the same thing that like, you know. So many of his counterparts, like not in Brooklyn, but like when they go down there, are directly dealing with cartels, and that's really the only thing you can do. And parts of it are potentially frightening, you know. Yeah. Uh, but there's so many places that you can go that are essentially just like Brooklyn at this point, you know. Uh-huh. They like mirrored certain restaurants, and oh, yeah. this whole tangent. It was really pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's a legit business, so you could buy a, a t-shirt or a drink or something, and it's probably going to be okay. <laughs> but it just, just it's just their way of laundering the money. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, and then there's horror stories and stuff, just because of. Oh, my buddy got the, drunk the, and robbed. And, and yeah, and, like the club, the yeah. club scene, just because there's so much partying and yeah. and the money from the Americans, it's gonna it's gonna happen there. Even yeah. if there wasn't, even when there the cartel hasn't been as active, it's been sure. still there. Um, but yeah, let, so go back to um, you've said a couple times, and Elliot mentioned this too. You've you've come and gone to Jackson 
living here. This is your fourth time now. Third time. Third time. Yeah. Um, kind of the boomerang effect. Go back to your like your first time coming to Jackson, whether that was uh, you know on a trip or when you moved here, and and talk about you know what did you what did you feel when you first saw the Tetons? What did you, what kind of energy did you get from the people and just the whole town? And I know it's different than it is. It's different probably then when it is than what it is now. Um, but go all the way back. What was your first? Well, comically, feeling? Um, the the very first time that I came here was in two thousand three. Um, Almost entirely by accident. Uh, several friends of mine and I were uh, backpacking in the Wind River Range, which is, I don't know, 60-ish miles from here. Yeah. Um, I'd never been to Wyoming. I really didn't know what was going on. And we were in the woods for like 28 straight days and had some, some horse-supported meetups where we'd, like, we'd get food drops you know, every eight days or whatever. So we were out for were, a while. Were you, on, were you like going from like point A to point B or just yeah. like we're just going to hang out in the woods? No, it was, it was, I mean, if I pulled out a map, I could probably show you where we were. Yeah, we, we intended to do this really, you know, lengthy kind of route and yeah. set up pickups and holdings, whatever. Um, but so, you know, day 28 or whatever it is, we finally get out, we get picked up, and we're driven back into town into Lander, which is, you know, over that way. And we were just starving. Like, yeah. we, we totally miscalculated on the wrong one, and we were out of food, and we'd been out of food for, like, three or four days, and we had all, like, you know, shed 10, 15 pounds, and we were just freaking out. And so we've been talking about food for days. Yeah. Um, and so my one buddy and I, uh, we were like just freaking out. We really wanted sushi. And so we started asking around, went to a gas station. We're like, where can we get sushi? And you, you should not buy sushi at Lander. <laughs> like, I don't even know if you can, truthfully, but yeah. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my first thought, right? Mm -hmm. But they were like, oh, well, all those rich folks over in Jackson, they have good sushi. And we were like, done. So yeah. we just hopped in the car and drove over here, which is, you know, three-ish hours. Uh, so by the time we got here, the sun was down and I never saw the Tetons. Oh, okay. I had no idea that they were there. Yeah. I really knew nothing about Jackson or about Wyoming. And we went to this place called Nikai, which no longer is open, unfortunately, but had this really great sushi dinner. And then turned around and I mean, we spent like $400 or something. And then we turned around and drove back to Lander. And that was it. So that, like, I didn't know anything about Jackson. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, you just knew that you liked that sushi. Yeah, like, great place. Um, and then years later, 2007-ish, uh, I guess it was 2007, that was 2006? doesn't matter. In any event, um, there used to be a magazine here called Alpinist Magazine that was a uh, sort of long-form uh, alpine climbing journal, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was brewing beer at a brewery in Wisconsin at the time, but uh, imagined somehow that I could make money as a writer, which I think we all know is not true. <laughs> um, what city in Wisconsin? Madison. Did we talk about this? I think the first time we, we met... Yeah. yeah, so I'm from the Twin Cities, so I've been to Madison yeah. a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah, um, and I lived in the Twin Cities. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I imagined that I could be a writer, and so I, I uh, found this internship. Well, actually, this is relevant. It turned out that the guy that owned the brewery um, was laundering money <laughs> from something else through the brewery, uh, started like bouncing paychecks and everything else. So basically, the whole staff quit, and mm -hmm. we were all looking for new jobs. So I found this internship with this Alpinist Magazine place in Jackson Hole, which I had been to, but had essentially forgotten that I had been here because yeah. I had not seen the Tetons again, and I didn't know what was going on. But it seemed cool, and I was like, yeah, okay. So I applied and got the internship and basically packed my stuff in my car and just drove out here. Wow. Um, on the way, uh, I called a friend that I knew from college just to chat, and it turned out that her sister had moved here and that she herself was visiting her sister. Um, and so we just met up 
came to the brew pub, <laughs> not knowing, you know, we just, awesome. we're going to grab a beer, like in, you know, college days or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, decided basically over a beer here that she was just going to stay here too. And we we're going to get an apartment. Um, <laughs> And that's sort of my first brew pub experience. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, we're still friends now. I went to her wedding not terribly long ago. Awesome. So it was cool. What um, was the what was the brew pub building like back then? Because they they kind of you, you guys got the restaurant sort of setup you have now like a couple of years ago. Um, so was um, that just like bare bones, like just beer and? No, it, it looked pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of changes that have happened over the last fifteen years or so. Um, are all mostly in the upstairs and the addition of that upstairs bar yeah. um, and that whole other section and that, that sort of upstairs patio and everything. But, I mean, what you see when you walk into the front doors was there from the kitchen. Oh, okay. And cool. So, uh, People have been standing there in the entryway with their mug club mugs yep. since day one. On the mail rail up the ramp? Yeah. yeah. I always <laughs> laugh when I see that because there's like plenty of bar seats, plenty of tables available, but the, the diehard fans of this place are always standing there, even if there's not enough room for enough for everyone to be on the, they're like their elbows on that ledge. They're going to sit on the railing or just clog the walkway. Oh yeah. It's a, uh, and it's my bad for walking through there to go get food because, because they've been here for longer than I have. <laughs> it's bad interior design. Uh, I'm also one of those people and uh-huh. I, I love it. That is where I want to be in the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a bottleneck for sure. It makes no sense. Yeah. Like, because like, it's like right next to the door. You're going to get yeah. the cold breeze if you're yeah. in the winter. And but again, I will do that until I die. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fantastic. So. Yeah. I do like standing and stuff like that because I sit, you know, all day at a desk. So sure. I need to stand more. Um, I had a question that is escaping me now. Oh, and then, so you moved out here for the internship. Mm-hmm. And internships don't pay well. Yeah. I need to just work. So my very first thought since I've been working in a brewery previously. Um, and we'd come in here and I immediately thought the vibe was fantastic, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll go back there. And I did two or three days later and uh, applied to be a brewer. And at the time, uh, there was one of the brewery staff was thinking about leaving. And so I was sort of like on deck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the interim, they're like, well, do you want to like wait tables, bus tables or whatever? I was like, yeah, I mean, money's good, right? Yeah. You need to make money. So I did that and I did that for Quite a while, actually. Never became a brewer here. Um, then I left again, or left the first time, I guess, and worked for a brewery in Texas for a couple of years, uh, down in Austin, and covered all East Texas, and threw kegs around in Dallas and Houston and San Antonio or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, left Texas, a bit sweaty, was not a fan. Um, Austin, and, and to a surprising extent, Houston are actually really fun towns. Like, mm-hmm. everyone talks about Austin, but Houston's got some sleeper coolness to it, but yeah. Um, yeah, I was just kind of driving around and spent some time in Nevada and Utah and on California. And then I was like, oh, I should probably make money again. And called up my boss here and was like, Hey man, can I go back on the schedule? <laughs> he was like, sure. Yeah. Like, when do you want to start? And I was like, well, I could be there in three days. And just drove up from, I think I was in Utah. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Came back, spent another, I don't know, eight or so months here and lived in the back parking lot in my car, oh. uh, which was pretty enjoyable. For the summer, I yeah. would re- recommend that you know anytime between I don't know September and April. But yeah, um, what what made what made you and and keeps you now like in this in the this microbrewery or brewery industry that you like? Is it just you like beer? You like being around beer? Or is it 
you know. I mean, I do very much like beer. Yeah. I think it's a pretty interesting product. Mm-hmm. Um, and combines, a, a, you know, some elements of agricultural, uh, you know, kind of production that, that it shares with good wine. Mm-hmm. But it's also an industrial process at the same time, much more so than wine is, right? And yeah. so, like, you sell wine on romance and stories specifically, um, and, like, kind of the, the terroir and, the, you know, everything about this particular vineyard and, you know, this aspect of sun on this hill and everything else. And yeah. There's a there's a fog that comes into this valley. Sure. And that's like the grapes a, in a certain like a legitimate way. thing. I mean, that's yeah. true. That's Columbia Valley was that example. Sure. Um, and I, I really, really appreciate the storytelling that goes behind the wine. Yeah. Right? And... In beer, we don't quite have that opportunity, um, with the exception of very specific breweries that have had the kind of financial resources to like build their own farms and then grow mm-hmm. their own hops and you know produce their own barley. And you know, there are a small number of breweries that are essentially taking the winery route, right? By yeah. controlling every single controllable that they can, they can have that romance. But for most of us, we're all buying our ingredients um, from a relatively small number of sources, right? Um, we're all using, by and large, the same hop strains. And so for us, it's teasing out those flavors from essentially the same ingredients um, by how we tweak process, right? Mm-hmm. And so that I find really interesting. Yeah. Even though I'm no longer a brewer, and I'm truthfully not a tremendously talented brewer. I never was, right? <laughs> like, I can follow a recipe, but I'm not a, I'm not like our head brewer that can come up with something, you know. And be like, oh, we'll add a little bit more of this hop, and this will make us a good APA sure. versus the I, an IPA or something like what, that. Yeah, and, and there are much more talented people in that space than I am, but yeah. I still find it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really interesting that so many people have come into this industry either disgruntled or just tired of other industries in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a, a say an engineer, um, that and you engineered bridges, right? Yeah, there's a fairly high chance that you and every single other bridge engineer in the world went to like one of five schools and know exactly the same people and do exactly the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that, and that's good. We shouldn't have experimental bridges, right? Yeah, like, I don't think that's a good. We need bridges that work. Yeah, right. But you can experiment here, and so you know, one guy I used to work for in Texas uh, for a long time was a microbiologist that worked on like the Human Genome Project, and then he was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna make beer." <laughs> and then started a brewery. Um, the head brewer there used to be in a kind of like hardcore band called the Jesus Lizard. I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, no, I'm not. Late eighties. Um, I'm gonna look at my friend now. Yeah, they're they're pretty entertaining. But um, yeah, he was a, a guitar guitarist or bassist or something in this like seminal like hardcore band, and then left that to become a brewer. You know, mm-hmm. um, and those two guys worked together, and that's a really weird partnership that you would never have expected, but it's interesting, right? And I think that happens pretty regularly um, in this industry. It creeps me around. Yeah. You know, specific to this brewery, um, I just like the vibe here, you know. There's a lot of good continuity, and there's people that are hanging out down with that mail rail that, you know, I've been talking to for 13 or 14 years, and mm-hmm. they've been talking to some other guys for 25 years, and I meet those guys. There's just, there's a lot of good local continuity here, and as we add new people to the brewery, you know, it just kind of stays. Yeah. And living in... Denver, which I did for a number of years and working for a different brewery in sales. Um, I don't know, there's 200 breweries in Denver, right? But many of them make phenomenal beer. Um, but I never once got that same vibe. There's just It's just too new, you know? Mm-hmm. And even the breweries in Denver that uh, have been around for 20 years still didn't have that same level of continuity because it's a big city. 
or big-ish. I mean, it's three and a half million people, whatever. It's not a real city. Yeah. But compared to here, it's, you know, wildly crazy big city. Yeah. And just the turnover happens differently, you know? Um, that's mm-hmm. just how cities are, and that's something that I really like about cities. And I like to go. Like I said, I was in New York, like, a week ago. Yeah. It was fantastic. But um, you don't get that same community like oriented vibe that mm-hmm. I do here. So this has always been my model of like, if I want to go to a brewery, I want it to be like this. Yeah. That's awesome. Have you ever been to um, the Santa Rosa area or, or heard of um, a Russian River Brewery? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've never been, but I've certainly, I know the beer. Yeah. But that, that whole area is a good combination of what you were just saying. It has obviously the wine because it's total wine country, mm-hmm. but then it has a bunch of really cool breweries and so you can com- combine it. And if you're like, either a wine or a beer person, it's just like such a cool spot because you can get, there's just like a row of like really cool breweries, really cool uh, wineries all in a row, all in the same area. So it's a really cool combination of that. I feel those two ideas you were saying. Mostly confident that my brother uh, and his wife went there for their honeymoon, I think. Sounds very familiar. For San, into Santa Rosa. Yeah. 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 T- my girlfriend and I went there um, in October. Okay. Because I have... My my stepmom my stepmom grew up there and so I have my step grandpa and um, step aunt and uncle that uh, a few step aunt and uncles actually that all live in the area and so we um, it's just a cool. Do you go step by step? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> we're so close. My, Sorry, my that was too funny. My <laughs> my dad and my stepmom have been married since like '05 or something. So right. I only I only say step to people who just like don't really know. Sure, but yeah. But it's a super cool area because it's a combination of like outdoorsy stuff. You're hiking in the redwoods. You're doing right. be on the beach, and if you like to golf, there's that too. And then like that artistic wine champagne sure. that you just said, and then the more industrial beer stuff. The the most of the blue collar people will are, are the beer drinkers, and then the the people vacationing from San Francisco are the wine drinkers. Well, and you, you bring up a good point. Like beer is also um, for better or for worse viewed as a vaguely blue collar thing. Yeah. And that is part of its, its marketing charm. Um, even within the realm of, uh, you know, the most hipster, you know, beer snob, I'm trying not to be pejorative here, but like, uh, you know, there's any number of of beer festivals that we've been to and you, you know, that guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, that guy in general maybe isn't so blue collar, but I think that the, the vast majority of beer drinkers at least identify to a certain extent. They're working people somehow. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And yeah, that's um, good. That's a cool, good point. I don't, I wonder if that's just, it's been branded that for so many years. Yeah, I think or, it's just branding and that's fine. But or, a lot of like winemakers you know, drink beer, right? Like yeah. The people actually in the back making the wine oh, yeah. are all beer drinkers. Oh yeah. And I mean, even some of like the, the greatest winemakers on the planet, like they get down and they crack open a Pilsner or something. And they just hang out, like yeah. You know, wine has such different um, whether it's marketing or it's true, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, just such a different vibe to it. And like, mm-hmm. I will happily sit down with a phenomenal glass of red wine and yeah. eat a meal, and I won't be able to tell you all of the things about it that, like, say, my fiance could tell you about it. But I get it, right? And it's part of the ambiance and it's part of the thing. And I prefer that. I don't generally drink, you know, an IPA with my beautifully marbled. Kobe beefsteak or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just doesn't work. But yeah. if I'm hanging out on a raft and, you know, getting done with work and, you know, going for a bike ride and getting done or something, I'm definitely drinking beer. I'm not like, 
Yeah. Then maybe a Monarch Pilsner is is the thing for you. <laughs> I actually think the camera turned off. I'm gonna go turn it off. Turn it on real quick. But you're totally right. That's when I finish a bike ride or something or on the mountain, I'm not reaching for this heavy a heavy cabernet. I'm reaching for a light beer to chill drink. you out, drink easy drinkable. That's why I like like I said, I drink Franzi all the time. Because mm-hmm. their stuff's super drinkable because it's just like they didn't put all the extra effort into it to make it like this heavy yeah, flavoring probably or, adjunct like a bunch of corn syrup into it to just get extra fermented <laughs> sugars or something but probably yeah yeah i don't know i don't i don't make yeah. yeah yeah only only god does right yes um uh yeah so let's um sorry one second um yeah so let's go into um so now you said you're back for the now second time mm-hmm. are you a uh you now are you a sales rep? Or are you just like a waitstaff type person? I was I was doing? right back on the on the floor waiting tables mm-hmm. and uh, had a great summer. And that was actually I mean that's ten years ago. That was a fantastic summer. It was really fun. Um, and unlike the previous time when I had the additional job, uh, I was just here. So I set my own schedule and uh, got to get out in the mountains a lot more and get in the Tetons and you know get out on the river a little bit and um, do some of the more Jackson things. So even though. You know, the outdoors has been important to me for a really long time. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the beautiful things about this place is that it's pretty accessible. You know, even if it's incredibly challenging, you know, you can, in theory, walk out your door, climb the Grand, and come back and go to work. Like, yeah. it's, it's you got to be swift, but, I mean, certainly people have done that, right? Yeah. Um, that may be an extreme example. Um, and that's, that would be the Grand Teton, for those of your listeners that are not paying attention. But, um, and that's great, and that was a great summer, but... Um, you know, living in your in your Jeep over the winter uh, isn't a great plan. Didn't seem super compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided to leave and move to Colorado where the weather's nicer. And it was literally driving to Durango. Um, and then a buddy of mine that I'd worked for in the past called me from Denver and was like, hey man, uh, do you have a job right now? And I was like, nope. So I took a left and headed to Denver. Um, I was there for a couple of years doing marketing and communications work for a nonprofit, um, which... I like the nonprofit's mission, but I don't particularly like sitting in front of a desk all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that got a little boring. And uh, um, I don't know, two years into that, it was a while. Um, a position opened up in Alaska at an Alaskan print company uh, doing essentially the same thing marketing communications. Oh. And uh, I always thought Alaska would be kind of fun. Yeah. So I broke up with my girlfriend and uh, just kind of took off and drove to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Which she was not thrilled about. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I was in Alaska for a bit and um, working for Alaskan Brewery Company, and they were fantastic and still are. Like, really great brewery, super classic. They've been around for 30 something years, so long yeah. than us. Theirs is the, uh, their big one's the Alaskan Amber. Yeah. Right? Yeah, one of the classic American craft beers. Um, yeah. Their Smoke Porter, I think, is still the most award winning single beer um, ever at GABF. Whoa. Um, so they make great products. And yeah, it was cool to work up in Alaska, but um, you know, after a winter there, it was kind of like, no, Colorado does have pleasant weather. Let's. <laughs> what's it like? What city were you in there? Juneau. Juneau. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that get affected uh, uh, as much about uh, with the lighting? Like, what was, what was the? How much daylight is there in the in the winter? Shortest day of the year in Juneau, um, officially, I think, is just over three hours of daylight. Jeez. Um, so they're relatively south as far as, um, might be like three and a half. We could Google that too. But, yeah. um, 
the problem with, with Juno is how the mountain ranges that surround it are oriented. It doesn't really matter that officially you get, you know, three and a half hours or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, because an hour plus of that, it's behind one mountain range or another anyway, oh, either yeah. rising or setting. And that's assuming the sun comes out, which is rare there. They get about 300 days of overcast, you know, 110 inches of rain every year. Yeah. Like kind of the northern extension of that Seattle kind of climate. Um, but is it on that, that strip that's like paralleling Canada mm -hmm. and almost basically connects to yeah. America? Yeah. Or continental America? Incidentally, uh, we still have a border dispute with Canada going on that has been going on for like decades. Uh -huh. Pretty close to Juneau. It's up on this ice cap and they can't figure out like under the ice where the official marker is. So technically we're in a border war with Canada. Oh man. Fun fact. But, um... Yeah, so that was company, cool. Living in Juneau, not so cool. Um, so after a bit, um, asked to be transferred to the sales team, and it was basically a coin flip between back to Denver or to Los Angeles, and the coin flip turned out on Denver. Uh -huh. And so I moved back to Denver and then uh, covered Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico for a number of years as a salesperson. Uh, so I was still coming up here, actually, pretty regularly, and kept in touch with everybody here. and. Mm. Um, you know, maintain those relationships. And so after years of doing that and managing that territory, uh, the sales guy here uh, left and wanted to go do something else. And so they called me up and uh, I was by no means the only applicant in that space, but uh, I think having worked here twice before was helpful at least. Mm -hmm. But I, I assume that there were some other qualified folks too, but um, yeah, it was great. So, you know, contemplating that and leaving Colorado after, you know, six years or whatever, that's a long time to live in a place, but yeah. Uh, at least for me, but um, it seemed like a great move, you know, I like to come back here and for all the reasons that I already listed that, that this place is great, um, made sense. It was a good call. I was like really happy to come back and feel immediately welcome back into it, you know? Yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the sales process like for, you know, just kind of beer in general? Like, so I think I might mention I'm in, I'm in high tech sales. I sell um, processing and platforms and professional services to banks mm -hmm. and so it's you know this big b2b sales process and there's a lot of um you know depending on who you're speaking to at the bank how do you approach them and all that and some of it's cold selling and some of it's sure. a little bit warm and stuff like that so what's the sales process like like as you're as a seller do you have to is there those cold calls do you walk in is the the idea that i've had it have in my head is just like you look at a bar's cooler or a liquor store is cool and you say, oh, you need some Pacos, you need some Jenny Lake, you need some of this, and like, here's your bill, here's your invoice. Um, well, you know, after Prohibition, so 1933, right, uh, 21st Amendment, um, the repeal of Prohibition uh, essentially left it up to each state to regulate uh -huh. um, how they wanted to do that. And so there's no one quick and easy answer because it varies a lot by region. Mm -hmm. um, but in most cases, we are legally required to sell through a third-party wholesaler or distributor, uh -huh. and that's just true across the board, right? Um, there's exceptions that are carved out for self-distribution under certain volume caps, and yeah, 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 like you know, techno battle, whatever. Um, so in almost every instance in beer sales, your distributor that you have to work with, like you have to work with a distributor, but once you've signed a contract, depending on the state, it can be easier or harder to change that contract. In some states, you're essentially there for life. Yeah. Um, so you've got to work through your distributor. And in almost every instance, your distributor is going to have uh, 
just way more opportunity to see each individual bar or liquor store or whatever mm-hmm. on a weekly basis, you know. Um, the supplier, you know, like we supply beer to the wholesale, wholesale sell to the retailer. Yeah. Um, so supplier reps um, inevitably like just can't see the same series of bars the same number of times that say like, you know, Joe down the street does or whatever. Um, so you always rely on your distributors first. Yeah. yeah. You want to find out from them, you know, what's going on, how does their territory look, where are the opportunities, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but the actual process, I mean, is, is not that hard. Um, yeah. People are very rarely upset with you if you show up to their bar and sit down, bring them free beer, and then also hand them money to buy one of the beers that they already have mm-hmm. to, like, spend the time and talk with them, right? Because yeah. you're already then a customer. And that dynamic is great. Like, hey, I just gave you five bucks. And, oh, and a free beer. So you'd go in, like, with the six-pack and then just, like, buy what they already have and, like, talk about, like... I mean, not every single bar, otherwise I'd be dead by now. But, yeah, you know, the, the targets that I definitely, like, want to spend more time in. Talk about, like, hey, like, you know, what kind of beers do you go through a lot? Where is there any, is there any opportunity for yeah, you just, you my just, brewery to come in and do something you here? You find out what the... I mean, this is so much more relationship ship based than, than necessarily product based. Like it certainly helps to have a good product. But, yeah. Um, but I certainly know bars in other parts of the territories that I've sold in that carry almost exclusively really terrible beers because they have good relationships with sales reps. You know, like can't miss that. Yeah, it's fine. It's all good. Um, so I mean, yeah, but like my preferred thing is to go into a bar, bring somebody, you know, three or four or five different beers, set them down and be like, we can taste these right now. We can taste them when you're not busy. You know, like, you just let me know. But in the meantime, I'm going to buy a beer and I'll wait for you. Mm-hmm. You know, because it doesn't put pressure on people. I personally don't like being hard sold. You know, yeah. if you're just really at me, I will almost just on principle not buy whatever you're trying to sell me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like to be that salesperson. I like to come in and talk and see what's going on and figure out, you know, figure out the gap or figure out um, if we can save them money, you know, because mm-hmm. our product is $7 cheaper or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, or if it's just a certain quality space that like, you know, uh, somebody's not been providing them the service that they want. Um, you know, cause once you make the sale, you got to support it. And in the case of beer, that can, that's a huge spectrum. And it also varies by state. Like in certain places, I literally just can't do things. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot provide, you know, advertising support in California in any way. Um, even on like Instagram. Like they explicitly in California, like code with relation to alcohol sales or something. If I make an Instagram post that says, oh, hey, you know, Tyler's Bar down the street is selling, you know, Snaker Brewing Company Monarch Pilsner or whatever, like theoretically we could be fined or lose our license. But that's California, right? Wyoming, that's insane. You can kind of do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably Wisconsin is like that too. Wisconsin is is wildly free. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Did you see that thing, by the way, Uh, three or four years ago? I don't remember who did this, but they, they looked at a bunch of factors like, you know, per capita bars and liquor licenses in a city, um, DUIs, uh, public intox arrests, like blah, blah, blah. Like drunkest city? Yeah. Or something? And seven of the top ten were in Wisconsin? <laughs> yes, I did see that. Yeah. And a lot of them, too, were like the UW schools towns. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was like Milwaukee, Green Bay, Oshkosh, Platteville, right. like all those UW schools oh, yeah. towns. Um, <laughs> And then, and then I, I just love seeing that because just being a Packer fan and like my, my family's cabin is in northern Wisconsin. I just have a little bit of, I have a little Wisconsin side in me. Oh, sure. I mean, I haven't lived there in years and presumably never will again. 
Yeah, highly doubt that. But um, yeah, I still like parts of it. You know, like there's. It's interesting having lived all over the West too, particularly like traveling around the West, how like pockets of people kind of congregate as well. Yeah. And so, uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, you know, different ski town, whatever. I would say subpar ski town compared to us, mm-hmm. but um, everywhere is everywhere is subpar. Arguably, yes. Um, <laughs> I do have a fondness for Durango, but that's a whole separate thing. Um, but no, that huge numbers of people from Minnesota and Wisconsin. Oh, really? That like have become locals in Breck. Yeah. Whereas here, like a lot of the old timers, um, which I guess I'm a marginal sort of old timer on some level, but yeah. um, I'm an outlier. Like most of the people here are from the South. It's a lot of like South Carolina, Georgia. Yeah, a lot of Georgia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of, uh, yeah, that kind of the SEC area. Mm-hmm. A lot of people from there. A lot of like SEC football fans too. Oh, yeah. Like a lot of the bars are specific, like, like Moe's is a, the Georgia bar. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very strong Clemson contingent here. Oh, I know. I, I, I'm admittedly a Clemson bandwagon fan. A bunch of my buddies from, from Minnesota, they have a connection and they go down to a game like every year. Mm-hmm. And so now I've just become a fan. I've just become a fan from it being, it, of having it be a fun time watching games with them and sure. seeing them win national championships. So I'm a bit. I'm a band, total bandwagon Clemson fan. I'll admit it. I'm not going to say I was here for that long. I have one shirt that my friend got that was too big for him, so he gave it to me. Um, but, yeah, I, I say go Tigers whenever I see a, an orange paw. There you go. Yeah, but you're right. There, there is a lot. And I don't really have a, you know, a great reason for that. But Yeah. Um, seems like Montana State. Um, why Montana State? Uh, well, a lot of Montana State folks uh, come from Alaska. There's like a Montana-Alaska connection that I noticed. Oh, really? Living in Juneau. They still want, maybe they come down, they still want a, or no, so they go to Montana State, then they move to Juneau, or the reverse. Both. Oh. Or they're they're born and raised in Juneau, and they go down to Montana State and come back. Mm. I don't know. And maybe it's just sampling bias, and there's some completely other variable that, like, (laughs) maybe I happen to like certain types of bars. And, in fact, the bar next door that I never go to maybe has a bunch of people from New Jersey and I just never noticed. I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. These are these are like trends that you could not really confirm without better sampling. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever been to Cuddy's for an Eagles game? I refuse to do that. Uh, one of my closest <laughs> friends, Jeff Moberg, is from Philly, <coughs> diehard Philly fan, Philly Eagles fan, and uh, I've watched games with him and he just goes crazy, like classic Philly, like yelling, mm-hmm. swearing at everything. And I'm like, holy crap, this, this guy's nuts. And then we go to their playoff game that they lost and at Cuddy's. And Cuddy's here, Jackson, is really fun. Uh, almost like a hole-in-the-wall bar. It's almost like an old house they turned into a bar. Philly bar. So it's, it's packed with it's Philly fans. about as close to a dive bar as we have here presently. Yeah. Um, and that is not to disparage Cuddy's at all because actually they've got really food and like yeah they're, they're but the atmosphere is, is super chill and um it's not frequented by tourists anywhere near as much yeah um i would it's, actually i'm gonna back off of what i said it's not really a dive bar it's just a, like a normal bar yeah you know um we're so accustomed to our bar here being like fancy cowboy right that type just get the tourists in right and, and crank them in and out and yeah i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing I think people would but, yeah, it makes money. Yeah, make money and do it really well. Yeah. But, you know, 
was the the locals. You know, I I'm gonna come here even on my off days because I love Santa Cruz Brewing Company. But yeah, um, I also really like Cuddy's and I think it's a great bar. Just yeah, it's a bar. Yes, but we're there for the Eagles game and these table next to us are like. They're like telling the ref to like kill himself after he like made called a penalty against the Eagles, but it was like clearly a penalty. Sure. And I'm like, Jeff, you're like, you're like mild compared to these dudes. The rest of the fan Philly fans are just going nuts in there. Right. They're insane. Um, yeah. So, uh, what do you like to do in the mountain? What do you what What's your What are your hobbies here? You said you like to go get on the river. Are I mean, a- I was talking to a friend about this just the other day, but. Um, at my core, I am a climber. Um, I've been climbing since I was like 17, and um, that pretty quickly moved out of the gym and onto real rocks, and then started climbing ice and getting into the mountains and doing you know whatever kind of routes that that just made sense. And I don't think that I would ever claim that I'm like a really astonishingly good climber, but you know, um, have you done the Grand? Yeah, awesome. Um, I think my brother and I. Miserable, man. It's so unpleasant. Is it? No. My brother and I want to do it next summer. (laughs) It's not unpleasant. It's really great. Um, As far as, I think I've heard as far as like big mountain ascents go, it's pretty mild because it's, like you said, super easy access. I can wake up to my house, go do it, and then come back. Let's not say easy. I mean, it is like 15 miles uh, round trip with a thousand odd vertical every mile, up and down. So, I mean, your knees are going to take a little bit of a beating, but you're also younger than me, so maybe that's fine. Uh, yeah. No, but in, in terms of, like, really big mountains, yes, it's pretty straightforward. You know, the easiest... You're not, you're not, like... And this is the kind of... I think the case with, the, with most of the Teton peaks is it's not, like, 20 miles in the wilderness that you have to get through to get to the peak. Mm-hmm. It's, like, you know, I can see it from my house. So, it can... You drive to the trailhead, and you start walking uphill uh, in the dark. Yeah, hopefully that bear that's on like switchback three or whatever isn't around. Um, <laughs> I hate that bear. Um, <laughs> it's, I I thought it's so funny you say fat bear <laughs> instead of like there's a bear or there's been some bears. We know like is it like one that's tagged that is known that I just assume that it's the same bear. Yeah. I've seen a bear in exactly the same spot multiple yeah. times heading up Garden Canyon. Yeah, um, it could very well be. The son of the bear that I saw ten years ago, I mean, that would be plausible. But yeah. I saw him last summer. I mean, there's always a bear there. But um, yeah, and then you start walking uphill in the dark. Um, you avoid the bear, and then after a really long time, um, then you start like hopping through all these boulders in the dark, and that's really terrible. And then the light starts to come out, and then you realize that it's like stunningly, shockingly beautiful, and it's awesome because mm-hmm. yeah, you're on so, the east side of the range, so yeah. you're getting this great, you know, pink glow light and it's really yeah. stunning um, and then eventually you get up to the saddle and you kind of want to die um, and it's I took that of the sunrise couple, uh, that was like nice. Monday morning yeah I was nice. like that's the kind of thing you're talking about this is for the people who follow me on Instagram the, po- the my last post is the the Grand Teton and the, the Big Teton Peaks with a nice pinkish orangish glow for the sunrise and it was just like yeah it's, it's phenomenal and then yeah. you then you, you know you take your break and you're like oh man I'm climbing in the the lower saddle, this is fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. you're at, I don't know, 12,000 feet or whatever. Um, and then you have lunch, you know, at 8 in the morning or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, depending on the day, um, and this, it almost doesn't matter what time of year. Like, I've only been up in the summer, but 
Um, you can still definitely be in sub-freezing, super windy, terrible conditions, and then you got to you know muddle your way up this gully that may or may not be totally covered in ice, even in like July. Yeah, uh, and then you get to the upper saddle, and then you're like, you know, you look at it and you're like, oh man, it's in the dark. Like most of the, the you know easy route is on the shaded side. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, oh man, it's cold. <laughs> and then like, you know, eventually you decide to do it. Depending on your skill level, you either rope up or don't. I mean, it's it's a pretty easy rock climb, all things considered. Um, there's a, I don't know, 1,800-foot drop to your left, so you probably shouldn't screw it up. Mm. Um, hence, ropes. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's probably a bunch of other people up there. It's pretty like social. You know, it's just it's such an iconic peak, and people want to do it. So I doubt you could ever do it in the summer and not see other people on it, right? Yeah. Um, and you get to the top, and there's like a bunch of people up top, and some of them are drinking beer or smoking cigarettes or like doing whatever, and it's awesome, and it's kind of a little party atmosphere. And then you got to walk the eight miles back down the thing. And, um, yeah, by the time you get to the car, generally your like knees are you know throbbing, and um, you feel like really awesome about what you did, but you also just kind of want to die. And you're yeah. like, why did I do that? That was like the worst twelve hours of my entire life. Yeah, so, is that is that I was gonna ask? Is that how long it usually takes? Twelve, a full twelve hours? Oh, it takes much longer. It depends on how fit you are. Many people, I would say most people that like are guided clients or um, or even are coming from lower elevations that maybe aren't used to it, will almost certainly just uh, get the permit, hike up to the lower saddle and camp out for the night, and then get up early, some of the peak, and then come all the way back down and do it for two days. Yeah, that's a much more normal thing. Um, I think doing it in a day is very a Jackson thing. Yeah, um, we are crazy. There's there's a higher level of confidence here yeah. than in many places and so again I'm not like a phenomenal climber I'm not a particularly fit guy by a lot of standards mm-hmm. um, certainly not by Jackson standards but um, no my personal best time of the grand I think is just over 12 hours and okay. that's that's I think normal-ish I think the best time that anyone's ever done car to car is like two hours or something like it's just offensive like they sprinted it right yeah Do you, have you ever heard of um Jimmy Chin's training routine when he's training for these like big, big excursions he does. Oh, it's gonna upset me, but sure. Go it's ahead. it's like, it's like two summits of the Grand and then like a summit of like the Middle Teton like a day, and he'll just like I don't know if he's running it or what he's doing, but that's just like. I remember get... you actually that the Middle Teton is a, a climb that I like better. Um, that one's like, I uh, a buddy of mine did that last summer. And he said it's almost just a hike. Like it's just a long hike. It depends on which route you go, but regardless, um, and there's some technical ways up it. Like the North Ridge is pretty cool, but um, regardless of which way you go, the cool thing about the middle is that it's like a thousand feet shorter than the Grand, right? Yeah, give or take. Um, but then you can still look up at the Grand and like watch parties on it because there's almost never anyone on the middle because nobody cares. Like, yeah. Oh, it's the middle Teton, whatever. But you still get a really full value day. It's like it's, it's the same. You know, just, it's the same canyon and the same yeah. hike. And, the views are really great. You have the same experience, but then you get up in the middle and there's nobody there and you just can't hang out and yeah. watch people, you know, like, like they could have called it like, uh, some other word, like the word grand and it would be like probably more common, but they're calling it like the middle child of mm-hmm. the, of the Tetons. Cause it's like, what is there? The, the South Teton and the Grand Teton. And then there's like Timonot up there and those are all big peaks, but because we're calling it the middle child, probably people <laughs> don't do it as much. Years ago, um, I w- I did not participate in this, unfortunately, but um, the owners of the brew pub, uh, I believe this was the original owners, not the current owners, mm-hmm. um, 
could have been the first year that these folks owned it, though. I don't remember. In any event, um, paid somebody to hike a six-barrel up to the top of the Grand and then paid for some guides and stuff and brought a lot of the staff up the Grand and then pulled out the six-barrel as if to surprise, and everybody had, like, a beer and then went back down. Oh, sick. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That reminds me, um, when I was out, on, I was out splitboarding on uh, Teton Pass earlier in the season, mm-hmm. and um, we don't want to mention their name too often, but Roadhouse Brewing. Those just guys like, make good beer. Yeah. I, I, they're good people. Yeah, yeah they're good. Correct. But they left a little keg up there and just said, like, free beer, like, have fun, stay safe. And they're just sitting up there by that sign up there. And I was like, whoa, this. I suspect this, I know exactly who did that. Yeah. And now I'm mad at him. That's a very clever marketing plan. Yeah. You I can bring him up there for you. Tricky, tricky guy. Get a big sign. I'll ask him about it. Yeah. So, so you, you said you climb, are you like big into like skiing or ski touring or I like river stuff? Summer, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at it. I've been trying for 20 years. I can't, <laughs> I can't make it work. It just doesn't make sense to me. Do you have a winter activity besides? I like ice climbing. I was ice climbing up okay. in Bozeman four days ago. Um, mm. Ice climbing is great. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And summers here are fantastic. You know, like, they are. I got into pack rafting a couple years ago, you know, some of the super small inflatable kayaks essentially and so that opens up some interesting terrain yeah elliot talked about that too mm-hmm. um i took elliot on his first uh first pack rafting trip and i almost killed him so. he he told the story maybe you should t- tell the story from your perspective you know it doesn't matter um <laughs> the only critical part is that that landslide really screwed up the the you know how the river was supposed to go i <laughs> thought it was going to go oh he yeah he didn't i don't know if he mentioned that there was a landslide he just said there was a you thought it was going to be chill enough to get through, and then all of a sudden right. it just like wasn't chill. Yeah, we need to get due, out and walk on due the side. to a landslide. Yeah, that, okay. was, that was the critical factor. Like we okay. understood it to be much easier than it was. Yeah, and at that point, uh, our options were to paddle water that we shouldn't have paddled. Mm-hmm. That Elliot, in particular, should not have paddled, <laughs> having never paddled whitewater before. That was excessive. Yeah, um, that was a bad call. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, I should probably not have paddled it. I am not that good of a paddler. This is a new sport for me because I'm trying to do, you know, try new stuff. Yeah. Um, but we had no idea it was there. And so, you know, it was fine for a bit, but we came around this corner and there was a 10 or 12 foot standing wave that just was huge. And what's, uh, just for my own reference, how big is like uh, a lunch counter in like the 4th of July? That's what I'm 4th of July, it's generally pretty okay. Um, just for my own reference of like how big that would be. Well, I mean, it depends on the boat, right? So, think about it this way. A pack raft is, is what, seven feet long? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's slightly... So as long as your desk? Yeah, like slightly longer than me, whatever. I'm yeah. basically six feet tall. So, you know, my boat's knee-sized, and this wave is bigger than my boat, Yeah. so that's a problem. Uh-huh. So even if there's a, a 10 or 12-foot standing wave on lunch counter, yeah. you're in a raft that's 14, 15, 16 feet long. It weighs a ton yeah. with, like, however many people. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you could dump it, but you have to be an idiot. Yeah, right. You just have to not know what you're doing, or like not have a, a boat that's weighted down enough. Like that's not a huge wave for lunch counter, but like uh-huh. in a seven foot inflatable boat with just me and twenty pounds of gear, like I'm gonna flip it, right? Yeah. Like uh-huh. that's just gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Elliot managed to actually do really well in that and swam out of it much quicker than I did. I just got tossed and uh, swam a couple of miles and eventually got out and had to walk. Mm. I don't a long way, <laughs> like a couple of hours. Oh man, um, in pretty terrible terrain. Um, 
because you're deep in this canyon and you know there's grizzly bears up top. Like you're not gonna come out of the water, but we saw a bunch of tracks on the way in. Like, yeah, yeah. He was kind of he's trying to describe where that was to me. So it's on the Snake. Is it in the park? No, this is actually on the Buffalo Fork, which is a tributary to the Snake. It's like, um, so you drive up past uh, Moran Junction, which is where the road. Yeah, you go north and you go. Yeah, so if you turn, take that left, you go to Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah, okay. Don't do that. Keep going. Keep going north. Um, As if you were going to go over the Togate Pass towards Big Boulder Ranger or whatever. Yeah. Uh, And then on the left hand side, another, I don't know, eight, ten miles down, um, Turpin Meadows is like one of the rec areas back there. Yeah. So you basically park way back there and then hike for a while. And then you put into the, I believe it's the North Buffalo Fork. Oh. And then the North and the South Buffalo Forks meet. And then there's. At some point in there, some cord landslides that totally screwed it up. So, uh-huh. whatever, swam, walked a long way. Um, it was fun, but uh, I don't know. This summer, I think I'm gonna hike a bunch more. But I had a go at the Grand um, in August this year. We got up to like the upper saddle at you know 13ish thousand feet, and uh, I was with a with a fella I had never climbed with before, and he and I were just kind of like, it's cold and windy, and um, we don't know each other that well, <laughs> and there's like. 25 people in front of us in this line. Um, yeah. Let's go sit in the sun and eat lunch and then go home and drink beer. And, uh-huh. I got down and couldn't walk for like a day and it reminded me that I just hadn't been hiking enough because I'm in my boat the whole way, you know? Like, yeah. So. Yeah, awesome. Um, the uh, the story I told on, on the episode with Elliot was my, my main river experience or most memorable one. Um, this 4th of July, we decided to do the classic 4th of July drinking and floating that mm-hmm. a lot of people do here. Sure. We did uh, uh, South South Park to Astoria, mm-hmm. that section. Sure. So we just get the, the little shitty rafts from Albertsons, and Ooh. and they happen to be the same brand, so they all t- kind of tie together. So we had a group of like sure. eight, eight, ten people, and a, one of the people that bought one, it came with like a floatable cooler of the same brand. So we put that in our little the inside of our little circle, and none of us have river experience, and we like. I, I tried texting, calling everyone I knew around here who had been around here for any sort of time and be like, can we do this section with just rafts? Do we need experience? Or like, is this going to be safe? And everyone we asked said yes. Uh, not this year. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. The, <laughs> the, everyone said, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's chill. It's just everyone drinks and does this. We're like, oh, great. It's just like flat water. Sure. And that was, that's what we were expecting. We were, we were like, Get the things blown up or put them in the in the river ready to get in. Then there's like a river sort of forest ranger type person that was like checking people off, making sure they're all safe and good to go. And they're like, sure. do you have life jackets? We're like, no. Do you have paddles? We're like, no. They're like, do you have river experience? We're like, no. And they're like, all right, well, I hope to see you get out. <laughs> and then as we're like, oh, fuck. And then we, we all hop in, start to drift off. And they're like, oh, oh, if... Keep your eyes open for a brown-haired male. We're we're on the lookout for someone. He's missed, been missing for twelve hours. We're just like, what? <laughs> and then we look around. There's like, like these riverboats just ripping up and down trying to find this guy. And right. it turned out that like he got went missing the night before and um, and didn't make it. But we're like, what the fuck? Like, we are not we are not experienced enough for this. Well, and there's that new rapid there under the bridge. And I don't we did it before that. that. Oh, that was before that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that, 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 that was like end of July. We did that a couple of times, like late season in August. And it was super low water, but it definitely had a, um, 
It looks like it could be interesting. Like I'm, I'm curious to see it in like June. Yeah, like, that, that's might, like, that's we, just like debris from their building yeah. the bridge. So that could be like cement, crowbar, or rebar. I mean, I mean, there's like a bobcat um, that just got dumped in the middle of the river that forms a little weird hydraulic. Um, really? Down by. I can't remember the stretch. Um, it's it's farther south of the stretch. Oh, okay. Like so, like you get it, but yeah, it's it's like an excavator or something that oh, somebody dumped weird. into the river years ago. And then once you get down to like elbow, uh, which is further south towards Alpine, uh, on the side, like actually up on the bank, there's some kind of like tank. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a bulldozer that they like removed the, the thing from, but certainly like a tracked, you know, tracked like, vehicle. Yeah, that's wild. It's good thing yeah. we made it out. A couple of us got dumped a couple times, and, and whatever we made it out. Uh, but yeah, that's my river experience. Um, but yeah, so we're sitting at it's uh, four oh six right now. Okay. And we need to should we probably wrap this up. I do a meeting in like ten minutes. Yes. Yeah. Hard at work here at Snake River Brewing. <laughs> um, so yeah, do you have any other questions and whatever? Yes, I do have a question, and uh, I ask this to all my guests. Um, of the words, who, what, when, where, and why. Mm-hmm. Which of them, like, drives you the most in your life? So, the example might be if you're someone who is, like, super family-oriented. You would be like, you know, wherever my family is, even if they're assholes, <laughs> I want to be around them. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be, shout out to Cleveland again. We always, we always reference Cleveland as the shitty city. If there's a story about that, at least it's not Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Alex, Alex Kisanarigus, another one of my guests and good friends. He's from Detroit. They could be in Detroit and you'd want to be around your family. But that's an example of the the who. So so of those words, who, what, when, where, and why, which of them has driven you most in your life? Um, I think geography. The where? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's super qualified because... um, it might be a why because I'm just curious, right? Mm. And there are certain geographies that I unquestionably think are much more interesting. Like the Tetons are incredible, right? Yeah. This entire region is incredible. Um, the simple fact that it's, you know, one of the larger intact ecosystems on the planet is pretty cool. You mm-hmm. know, like we have moose across the street from the office. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, and we're looking, we're in the same office as we were for the Elliot episode. So we can see Snake River. I mean, you can see Snow King. Right. Like you could go do a quick lap on your lunch break. If I were more motivated, yes. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, like, there's a lot of incredible landscapes when we live in one, for sure. Yeah. But I'm also really curious. You know, and I've, I've lived in 11 states, and some of that has purely been like, what does Alaska really look like? Uh-huh. And that's honestly it. Yeah. You know, like, people are incredibly important, and relationships are incredibly important. And as I said before, I wouldn't be back at this brewery without that. Yeah, but also, this brewery probably wouldn't exist without the geography, and yeah, the way the geography shapes um, culture is pretty interesting. Um, you know, the the way that some of these mountain towns have grown and, and whatever is pretty interesting. You can compare a place like Gallatin County in Southwest Montana to Teton County, and simply like how the geography allows for building, mm-hmm. how the geography has. Shape the culture that protects certain geographies, but not others. You know, like Bozeman's stunning and has great access to mountains, but it's not the Tetons. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. This is a whole topic you could spin into for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, that's why I ask it. 
hundreds of books about, you know, like whatever. But um, yeah, the wear is super important. Yeah, um, I'm the wear too because the wear for the last like kind of two years has always been for the last two years it was it's always been Jackson is the wear, mm-hmm. and it was, before I got here it was how do I get there, and then now it's how do I stay here, sure. and how do I take well, advantage that's, of that's everybody's problem. Yes, yeah. everybody who's not uh, a billionaire. Well, at least your uh, girlfriend has a uh, notionally uh, compelling and possibly high-paying job. I have no idea. Medical stuff is good, though. I, I did listen to your podcast with her. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. See, yeah. She, uh, I mean, it pays, you know, it pays good. Yeah. We're not we're not millionaires yet. <laughs> I always say, yeah, because I got a lot of things, I got a lot of things brewing. Well, you know, you wait for inflation to make you a millionaire, and then you're fine. Then you can say you're a millionaire. Yes, exactly. Move to Zimbabwe. You could be a trillionaire. I could be, yeah. Do they? They? That's the country that has their actual dollar bills have like eight zeros because mm-hmm. it, like, bread is like ten trillion dollars. Uh, eight zeros is only billions, I think. I think it's like more like ten zeros. Yeah, going into trillions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure, I'm being Whatever it is. Yeah. I'm the wear also, and the wear has always been Jackson for me. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, take it three times. I yeah. get you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's where I've noticed now. Uh, this is the thirteenth or fourteenth episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like uh, so far that though I'm, I'm the only one of the people that I've talked to that has a specific goal of like I'm going I want to live in Jackson specifically and I want to do it this certain way and and do this thing. It seems like most of the people are like, oh yeah, Mountain Town Jackson, like I could figure that out or or um, you know, I, I, there's a job that attracted you or something like that. Like, there's not, it's not as much of a specific, like, I want to live in Jackson so bad because I love the energy and I love the mountains and I want everything that Jackson's about. Sure. More specifically than just like, yeah, let's try a season in Jackson. I'll just, I can, you know, be a waiter or I'll be a river guide or something like that. So you, you could do a, a whole podcast series uh, almost exclusively with people in our bar. Mm-hmm. Like, if you walked up to them and had an effective pitch on like why they should bother spending an hour talking to you. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm generally thinking like some of the, the folks that are a little bit older than me that maybe aren't as media savvy or what have you, but like yeah. there's some fascinating, really interesting, cool people that have bizarre stories about how they ended up here. Yeah. You know, that, that again, it's part of the reason I like this place so much, but um, yeah, not, not intentional. I think yeah. you are something of an outlier. Yeah, most people kind of drifted in here and it worked. Yeah, and, and it's kind of then became part of the fabric, right? So. Yeah, and it's a little weird to me because of how you know intentional you have to work to stay here. You know, maybe it's like they get intentional after be- being here. Yeah, once once you find out and you're like, oh yeah, this place is awesome. This like, is different. Like, people work on it for sure. Yeah, yeah, they get intentional. They, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. All right, so we're getting on our time, but yeah, so you are geography has driven you the where. A lot of it is... Or eco-psychology, if you really want to get into that. Eco-psychology. I don't think we have time to get into that. No, but, you know, how the environment shapes your psychology, which is a yeah. you know, different way of saying geography shapes culture. So, oh, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a whole different thing. But Yeah, awesome. All right, well, uh, tell the nice people. Do you do you do anything on social media or any place you'd want to... If they want to learn more about you, to check you out? Uh, I'm trying to think if I have any public profiles. <laughs> you can try and track me down on Instagram at... At the Luke Bauer. The Luke Bauer. Yeah, you got to give it the definite article. Not, there aren't any <laughs> other good ones. This is the Luke Bauer. <laughs> and then you can see his efforts, obviously, also on the Snake River Brewing 
Instagram and obviously coming to the brewery because they have some of the best, they have the best beer in town. Um, and, and also I just wanted to say thank you for, you know, believing the podcast, wanting to be the podcast, supporting the podcast. You guys have given, you know, for a sure, bunch man. of six packs now. Uh, just, it's been a dream just to be aligned with a, a brand like Snake River Brewing. It's been a dream. I appreciate that. Um, we like what you're doing. Um, and in reality, that's why I didn't make this particular like marketing, right? We can make this into a marketing like venue, and that's sort of what it is. But that's not very fun. Yeah, you know, you're the people who will come in here don't <laughs> want to hear you blab about marketing stuff. They want to hear like, oh, what's the story of a brewery? Like, why? You know, what we talked about, and, we, and that was great. But yeah, so uh, that's an episode, folks. Uh, hope you have a great day, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.